Religion has profoundly influenced the sweeping American narrative, perhaps more than any other force in our history, from the time before European colonization to the present. The startup National Museum of American Religion is working to build a museum in the nation's capital that will share the story of what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion, inviting all to explore the role of religion in shaping the social, political, economic, and cultural lives of Americans and thus America itself. Join our host, Chris Stevenson, for season two of our podcast series, Religion in the American Experience, as we follow scholars deep into America's religious history and learn how it can inform and animate us as citizens grappling with complex questions of governance and American purpose in the 21st century. Episodes will be released on the first and third Mondays of each month on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Register for notifications on our website, www.storyofamericanreligion.org, under the sign-up tab. Listeners, welcome to a special live webinar of Religion in the American Experience, a podcast series dedicated to better understanding and participating in the American project by showing the vast influence of religion on America and America on religion including the establishment of the revolutionary and indispensable idea of religious freedom as a governing principle in the United States. Join us in building the Digital First National Museum of American Religion by registering at nmar.org forward slash sign up, and that sign up is hyphenated. The recent discoveries of more than 1,300 unmarked graves at the sites of four former residential schools in Western Canada have shocked and horrified Canadians and the entire world. This has spurred an interest here in the United States to understand the history of our Native American boarding schools. U.S. Secretary of the Interior Deb Holland announced a federal Indian boarding school initiative, a comprehensive review of the troubled legacy of federal boarding school policies. Since many of these schools were run by religious orders, the National Museum of American Religion felt that we should convene a panel of experts to discuss religion's role in our Native American boarding school history. We'll answer any questions you have, listeners, at about the 50-minute mark, so submit them in the chat window. We are very honored today to have with, with us the following experts, scholars, advocates, and church representatives. Dr. Ashley Dreff, is the General Secretary of the General Commission on Archives and History of the United Methodist Church. Dr. Bradley Hoff is Episcopal Missioner for Indigenous Ministries and a member of the Presiding Bishop's staff. As Missioner for Indigenous Ministries, Reverend Hoff is responsible for enabling and empowering Indigenous peoples and their respective communities within the Episcopal Church. Dr. Farina King is a citizen of the Navajo Nation and Associate Professor of History at Northeastern State University in Taliqua, homelands of the Cherokee Nation and United Kitowa Band of Cherokees. She was born for Kinane, or the Towering House Clan of Diné, or Navajo. Dr. Brenda Child is Northrop Professor of American Studies and former chair of the Department of Indian Studies at the University of Minnesota. She is the author of Boarding School Seasons, American Indian Families from 1900 to 1940. She was born on the Red Lake Ojibwe Reservation in Northern Minnesota. And finally, we have Christine Dindisi McCleave, who is an indigenous consultant and a doctoral, a doctoral student in Indigenous Studies at the University of Alaska Fairbanks, where she is focusing on healing historical trauma through the use of traditional plant medicines. She is the former CEO of the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition and is an enrolled citizen of Turtle Mountain Ojibwe Nation. Thank you again, panelists, for being with us. Christine, can you start us off by painting the picture for our listeners? of the Native American boarding school movement, paying particular attention to religion's participation in it. Certainly, yeah. So um, the history of, of the church's role in Indian boarding schools is one that has to do with the federal policy that um, 
really sanctioned these schools. But so it, there's, of course, a larger historical context. But, you know, um, Christians, uh, when they came here as uh, settlers, you know, started proselytizing and evangelizing from the very beginning. So, you know, all the way back to the 1600s, there were praying towns that were established and missionaries who wanted to educate and convert the indigenous peoples here of Turtle Island or North America. Um, what really happened when the government um, of the United States was established and started to make treaties with those tribal nations was that in exchange for the land, those treaties um, offered provisions for those tribal nations, such as education, healthcare, and rations. Under the provisions of education in those treaties, um, the government uh, established the Indian Civilization Fund Act of 1819 um, to you know, administer these promises that they made in, in the treaties. And what they found then was that they had some problems with corrupt Indian agents because the Bureau of Indian Affairs was established under the Department of War. You know, previously um, the army had been told to kill all the Native Americans and, you know, remove them from their homelands. And now they were charged with delivering rations and, and healthcare and education. So obviously there was, you know, some, um, some hate and some racism going on there. And so by the uh, mid 1800s, uh, 1869, uh, thereabouts, President um, Grant uh, issued a peace policy, which meant two things. One, he said, we're at peace with the Indian nations now. And so there was an end to treaty making, although that was not true. There were still Indian wars and Indian massacres going on. But the other part of that was that um, he opened up the Indian civilization funds to churches because of the corruption and the hatred and the problems that were going on within the BIA with um, in corrupt Indian agents. So that is where we get access to, um, or we have the development of federally funded church-run Indian boarding schools. So it's not to say that churches weren't already educating uh, Native people and children, um, but now they had access to federal funding. So in some cases where they may have had a school already, you know, and then these federal funds came available, obviously most of them, took advantage of that and applied for the funding. Um, you know, we've talked to, I've talked to several of these schools and, and as they look into their history, they, you know, are adamant that they never took federal funding. Well, it doesn't matter. They're part of this larger history of, you know, nearly 400 of these um, assimilative boarding schools here in the United States that, you know, had a, a policy to remove the children far away from their home so that they could not return um, to their family so that they would be removed from their community to make the assimilation process easier. Their language, their culture uh, was prohibited, but more so the church run schools forcibly converted them. So not only did they, you know, often punish them in with physical punishment, if they prayed in their traditional ways or participated in ceremonies or held on to any of their indigenous beliefs about their spirituality, but they forcibly converted them to Christianity. They renamed them and gave them uh, Christian English names and um, made them attend church services and, and mass and, and whatnot. Um, so out of all those hundreds of boarding schools uh, that were part of this assimilation policy, many of these schools are still open today. In fact, you know, over 70 of these schools still open today. They, uh, they may not board students anymore. They may just be day schools, but some of them are still boarding schools and some of them are still church run. In fact, there still is an ongoing conversation about the role of the church in um, converted forced conversion, or at least just, you know, um, proselytizing and promoting uh, Christianity as a uh, superior religion to indigenous spirituality. Okay. Well, thank you. That was super, super helpful. I appreciate that uh, broad uh, foundation for our discussion, Christine. Uh, Brenda, I'm going to turn to you um, and uh, ask you if you can uh, give us let's see, um, anything else from the historical record, add to what Christine said, you as a professor of history with, uh, you know, specialty in this area, what can you add to that picture that Christine painted for us? Yeah, so I guess what I would say uh, about the history of, of government boarding schools, and this is something that's been a topic with me for a very, very long time, uh, because it was a subject of my first book, 
But what I have primarily studied as a historian are the off-reservation boarding schools established by um, the United States after Carlisle, the, the school founded in 19th century Pennsylvania. And there were, you know, by the turn of the century, about 25 government boarding schools, off-reservation boarding schools operating from Carlisle to the Midwest to areas farther west, way out to, you know, the Sherman Indian School and um, out on the West Coast. And so what I would say, even those, those were the federally funded schools, you know, that dominated Indian education for about 50 years in the United States. And it's important to remember that in the United States, the federal government kind of turned away from government boarding school policies beginning in the 1930s. And under FDR, many of those schools began to close down the federal schools. And as far as religion goes, um, I guess I would say during that time, even though these were um, kind of federal employees who ran the schools, who work for, you know, you might work for um, an Indian agency or you might, you might be an employee and work at a government boarding school, um, religion still played a role, right? Because at that time, there were very few people in the United States who would have who would have thought that it was not a good policy to have native people convert to Christianity. And so in the schools, like the schools in the Midwest I've studied, like Pipestone, Flandreau and Haskell, usually students had to make a decision in boarding school as to what their denomination was. Were you a Protestant, you know, uh, and where I'm from in Northern Minnesota, it's been kind of the uh, Episcopalians have been very influential on the various reservations or where I'm from at Red Lake, not in all the reservations, but in uh, one community in particular, the Catholic church was very dominant. And so people, you know, you weren't given a choice, right, during the boarding school era. So Christian education was kind of compulsory. You had to go to church. Usually that was in town. You had to pray. So there wasn't a big separation during the 50 years, that half century that um, Indian ed the boarding schools kind of dominated Indian education. In the 1930s, just to kind of um, just to kind of mention change, because historians are always interested in these issues of change, it became more popular than for Indians to go to public schools. Okay, all right. Well, that's helpful. Um, so you, you differentiate Brenda between on reservation and off reservation schools. Can you tell us briefly what that distinction is and why it's important? Yeah. So there were on, and I'm talking about federal schools because I'm, I've only studied actually federal off-reservation schools, but I, I've done a, you know, I know what we had at Red Lake. We had a couple of on-reservation boarding schools and the way policymakers in the 19th century kind of conceived of this, situ, this system of Indian education is that native children would attend an on-reservation boarding school. Say they were 12 years old and they'd gotten the basics of reading, writing, speaking English and so forth. And the idea was that at 12 or so, they would go off to an off-reservation boarding school. And so there were these boarding schools that, that existed within Indian communities. That, that was very, I think, very a different experience for students who attended them, right? Because if you're away from your family, if you're away from your, your community, it's a very uh, kind of different um, life and experience that people had once they attended an off-reservation school. I'm not trying to say that the system of Indian education was complete, right? That infrastructure that politicians kind of imagined and policymakers didn't necessarily exist, right? So sometimes younger children were sent to government boarding schools. But there were a lot of youth in the school, teenagers. Okay, thank you. Let's turn now to the two denominations that we have uh, represented here. Um, Ashley, uh, what have you found in your research uh, or your organization's research regarding the involvement of the United Methodist Church in Native American boarding schools? United Methodist involvement with boarding schools begins under our mother denomination, the Methodist Episcopal Church. Uh, the first recorded Methodist boarding school that we've been able to name is the Shawnee Indian Manual Labor Boarding School in Turner, Kansas. It's founded around 1830. Uh, it's arguably the archetypal school of its kind. Um, other schools which come after this one, including uh, Carlisle, modeled their entire educational systems kind of 
around these early manual labor schools. Uh, from what we've been able to find and kind of from, from what my colleagues have said here, uh, the initial request for some of these schools come from tribal leadership, uh, who's asking the government to kind of live into the treaty and provide education on the reservations. And knowing a lot of the times that denominations are already present in these areas, um, particularly the Methodist Episcopal Church, which was highly organized because of its itinerant system, the government turned to some denominations like the Methodist Episcopal Church to provide this education. So what we've been able to locate so far um, is about 23 different schools, uh, largely within the 19th, early 20th century. Uh, there are quite more than this are within the Methodist tradition. Um, we have a lot of different types of schools. So there's mission schools, there's day schools, there's boarding schools. Some are federally funded, some aren't. Some are on reservation, some are off. And so um, identifying the different names of schools and which category they fall into and some change in category as, as the school progresses as well. But children attended these schools for a number of different reasons. Um, in multiple settings, uh, tribal leaders chose where to send some children to school. Some were voluntarily sent and others were coerced. Um, the atmospheres of the schools varied as well. Many of the children didn't have necessarily the means to travel to and from um, their, their village or, or the kind of their reservation. And so some stayed more in a kind of a boarding school capacity while others had family visitation. And as what we've been able to find in terms of documents is that as the century progressed, right, these begin in 1830, as the century progresses, uh, the schools become more and more harsh and children are further and further distanced from their parents. Um, coerced conversion and forced conversion becomes more of a part of the pedagogy and indigenous culture is largely erased under this assumed superiority of not only whiteness, but of Christianity as well. And one of the interesting places um, that the General Commission on Archives and History is, is examining this question is through a comparison to the education and missionary endeavors on plantations to that of reservations. And so how do Methodists in the 19th century understand race, uh, religion, uh, education, pedagogy, mission, and all of this, when you compare kind of the educational systems of plantations, which largely, particularly in the South, but not exclusively in the South, believed that enslaved persons were not, quote unquote, worthy of education or of Christianity versus on the reservation where um, indigenous cultures are, you know, I'm quote, using your quotes, uh, worthy of Christianity, but a forced Christianity and worthy of kind of white culture, but again, a forced assimilative white culture. So it's bringing up a lot of really interesting questions um, as to how our denomination has understood its power, uh, its colonialism, its understanding of mission, et cetera, et cetera, uh, particularly in the 19th century. Thank you, Ashley. Um, do you know why? So it sounds like early on, early 19th century, that when the first schools were established, um, you, you indicate that this uh, that they were that the atmosphere was was generally positive but then moved later in the 19th century towards more harsh towards these students what can you tell us about that what sort of data do you have about that can you describe what you mean in maybe a little bit greater detail and maybe why that happened I can't like pin down uh, one concrete reason as to why my um, kind of best guess would be that you know the, the increased um, racism as the 19th century progresses, uh, the assumed, um, and again, quotes, manifest destiny or doctrine of discovery that's that's going forward as, as uh, white settlers kind of push into the West. I think there are more and more encounters of white settlers and colonizers with indigenous culture. And that's going to, to breed more racism and more misunderstandings of, of cultural right. perceptions. And so that's what I would attribute to kind of um, the increased harsh treatment. I think you also have more and more missionary societies being developed in the Methodist tradition as the century progresses. And so that's also going to kind of feed and fuel um, the racism and then the harsh treatment and the assumed superiority of Methodists. Yeah, okay. And when you say assumed superiority, was, was that a that I, I can't imagine, I mean, it, was that sort of an official doctrine of the Methodist church that, I mean, what, what was their official stance towards Native Americans? And, and maybe there's not an official stance, but what, what do you find? Uh, the, so you know, the, the closest thing, regarding... I don't have a quote unquote official stance, but the only body that can speak for the United Methodist Church is the General Conference. Um, I don't have the quote in front of me, but in the 1860s, 
kind of right around the Sand Creek Massacre, which Methodist clergy were largely responsible for. Um, there's a quote from our Book of Discipline from the General Conference Minutes that describes um, Methodists as religiously, racially, culturally superior to indig indigenous persons. Um, so that's about as close as you can get to an official stance sure. um, being in the general conference minutes and spoken from the floor. Okay, thank you, Ashley. Uh, Bradley, let's turn to uh, the Episcopal Church. What have you found in your research regarding the involvement of the Episcopal Church in Native American boarding schools? Palamia, thank you. Uh, I just want to start out by saying that uh, uh, this is a very personal issue for, for me and for my family. My parents were raised in the boarding schools in South Dakota. My father was raised in the federal boarding school at Pine Ridge. And my mother was raised in St. Mary's Episcopal School for Indian Girls in Springfield, South Dakota. Additionally, my mother's great-grandfather was a student at Carlisle. Uh, Indian Industrial School in Pennsylvania. So I've known about these schools my entire life. I heard stories about them from my parents and other relatives. It's part of the narrative that I grew up with. However, uh, there are many people who have not heard the stories and they're just learning about all of this for the first time, including in the Episcopal Church. So many Episcopalians were surprised and shocked uh, last year when our presiding Bishop Curry and president of the House of Deputies, Gay Jennings, issued a statement acknowledging that the Episcopal Church operated indigenous boarding schools in the 19th and early 20th century, uh, repenting of the sin of that activity uh, and calling for uh, learning and listening to the history and the stories of the indigenous people who were uh, victimized by this enforced assimilation process that the church uh, helped initiate. So there's uh, many of us in this denomination that are just hearing about this for the first time. There are a variety of different responses to that. Uh, there are some who are outraged and they want the church to do something right now. And why haven't we been doing something all along? And that's not really so much an indigenous response that comes more from non-indigenous congregations and dioceses and individuals. Uh, the indigenous response is more along the line of, okay, finally, you've heard about this. We've been trying to tell it to you for decades. Uh, let's spend time with this. Let's talk about it. Let's tell the stories. Uh, let's hear the pain. Uh, let's not rush into any kind of quick solution or fix so that it can be a, a one and done deal where the matter is resolved and we can just forget about it. We can't forget about it. We need to continue to spend time with it and, and listen uh, and learn. So at this point, um, we don't have a long-term strategy specifically developed. Right now, what we're doing is listening. We're trying to learn as much as we can about the Episcopal Church's involvement uh, with these schools uh, and see where that will lead us. I, uh, I'm baffled uh, that uh, there's a lot we don't know in the Episcopal Church about these schools that our denomination operated uh, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Uh, I've been doing some research uh, on my own, mainly in South Dakota, and the archives of the Diocese of South Dakota, and it was a diocese that operated the, the indigenous boarding schools there, the sectarian ones or the church ones. Um, there's not a lot of records that are available. There are huge gaps uh, within the years. Uh, and I imagine that that's the way it is with the other dioceses uh, as well. The, the records tragically are, are either not there or they were not well, well kept. I know of, uh, five schools uh, that operated in South Dakota, uh, St. John's on the Cheyenne River, St. Elizabeth's on the Standing Rock Reservation, uh, St. Paul's on the Yankton Mission, uh, the Bishop Hare uh, Industrial School in Rosebud, and then St. Mary's. St. Mary's had three locations. It burned down twice and had to be rebuilt or relocated. St. Mary's was an all-girls uh, school. That's the one my mother attended. And it operated from the late 19th century all the way up into the 1980s before it, uh, before it closed due to a lack of funds and students. Uh, 
The Bishop Hare Industrial School uh, uh, transformed into a uh, residential facility, a, a, a dormitory. It was a place where indigenous students could live while they were attending other local schools uh, that were not a part of, of Bishop Hare. And then the other schools closed, most of them in the early 20th century when the federal funding was cut off for sectarian schools. The Episcopal diocese had to do all the fundraising to operate the schools and they just couldn't, couldn't do it. And so that's when most of the schools closed uh, over 120 years ago or so. So a lot of time has passed. Uh, unfortunately, tragically, a lot of the students uh, have passed as well or they're quite elderly and frail. And when we take the time to listen to the stories, what we have found is that some are willing to talk and some don't want to. Some don't want to go there. They don't want to open up those wounds again that have been healing uh, for so long. It uh, therefore has been a, a, a very um, careful process and we want to carefully proceed uh, as we move forward. Bradley, uh, thank you for that. Can you describe your parents' religious education in, these, in the two schools they attended? Can you give us a sense from their experience of what that was for them? How did religion play a role in their sort of day-to-day? -day? What my father told me, he went to a federal school in Pine Ridge and uh, you had to go to church. Um, and the choices there were Roman Catholic or Episcopal, Episcopalian. He had been baptized Lutheran before he uh, went to the school. He, he lived at that school from age five to age 18. So virtually his entire uh, childhood and adolescence. And because he wasn't Roman Catholic, he started going to the Episcopal Church and eventually was uh, confirmed there. And at that time, the Episcopal Church had a number of missions that were operating among the indigenous population. And that goes all the way back to the assignment of the Episcopal denomination to the indigenous agencies in that region as part of Grant's peace policy. Uh, my mother was... Uh, uh, baptized and raised in the Episcopal Church before she went to St. Mary's, and that's one of the reasons that uh, her folks uh, sent her there. Uh, St. Mary's, uh, it was religion was part of the curriculum. It was chapel attendance was uh, required there, and, and it was part of the teaching. Not so much at the federal schools. Okay, all right. Thank you. Very helpful, Farina. Let's let's turn some time over to you. Um, can you tell us the history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints with regard to Native Americans, in particular, of course, uh, related to this boarding school issue? Sure. Um, so to also, in, in my bio, uh, it helps to explain also my positionality and coming to this, um, since you know, you're probably wondering how and how I can speak to this question of people what what how do latter-day saints in the church is i'll i'll say it because the official title is the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints and rather than repeating that every minute i'm, I'm going to be using that term um is that as you mentioned before i am um Dene. i'm a citizen of the navajo nation um biligana uh white settler descent born for the kiaani and sinajini clans um and i live in Tahlequah. Cherokee Nation and United Katua Band of Cherokees. So thanks for trying, Chris, to, to pronounce that one to make sure that's recorded so people can hear. Um, and my parents met at Brigham Young University. They are both converts who joined the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints as young adults. Uh, my father, who is Dene, um, I mean, just a story to, I think, embodies a lot of the connections between the history of the church. Um, and I'm actually working on a book of Dene do Gamali, of a, a memoir of Navajo Latter-day Saints in the 20th century. So when we say Native American, also keeping in mind, I'm um, really honored to be here with the diverse voices. Of course, no single Native American is the same even within a tribal nation and the diversity and all the different experiences. So, you know, there are parallels, similarities, um, but I am speaking especially from the experience in my research and Diné studies. So my father um, went to boarding school, Fort Wingate 
and also was um, at Rama, a dormitory. And people don't talk about how there's boarding school experience or very intersecting, intertwined experience that aren't necessarily in what people recognize as a federal Indian boarding school where a lot of the emphasis has been on. And so I'm glad we're having this conversation about denominations and religion and, and ways that there are um, these interconnections. It's a messy web, you know, these different threads and they're entangled. And um, my father, when he was going to the Rama dormitory, it technically was a public school he was attending, but he was also having a very um, boarding school assimilationist kind of education, staying far away from home and living in a dorm to go to school in a predominantly Latter-day Saint community, Rama. Um, and that like Brenda, Dr. Child had mentioned before, he had to choose a religion, you know, kind of my father talked about it as if it was signing up for a club. And um, he would go to different groups. And one day, a group of Latter-day Saint missionaries, because with the church, um, they started to establish Indian seminaries and start to really, um, whether they had, they did not have an official boarding school themselves. Um, the church did not, but they would set up programs like Indian seminaries or have missionaries positioned right next to the boarding school or churches, you know, close by that the students would have different pressures or um, I, I wouldn't say always pressures, but enticements, whether it was a Christmas party or candy or clothes to come, even food. And I would hear stories with my work with boarding school oral history in our mountain Indian school, for example, which was arguably one of the largest federal Indian boarding schools opened in Brigham City, another predominantly Latter-day Saint town. You know, the school was technically non-denominational, um, non-Mormon, but there were all these kind of underlying, underpinning ties between the church and the school, a major Indian seminary program and students who I talked to would say, I was hungry. So I went over to the church seminary. I went to their different activities or that I heard in my studies, there was a preference for Latter-day Saint staff being hired at Inner Mountain and actually um, protests and petitions and, and even um, some potential lawsuits involving those kind of favoritism and preference and, and such. So there's all these kind of dynamics, but um, back to the central story, I wanted to coming full circle here. My father um, as a board at the dormitory was picked up, um, invited to go with the missionaries, Latter-day Saint missionaries, to see a movie, like a fun activity. So it's often, you know, these enticings. And he went and he went to a movie in Gallup, which was a border town. Um, and then the missionaries took him to a church and baptized him. And he had no idea. They didn't ask, you know, his family or anything. And nothing happened after that. As my father shares, he says, I didn't have a testimony. I wasn't converted. You know, he just became a number because missionaries were pressured to keep track of the statistics or maybe even their mindset. They thought, well, at least, you know, they're being saved. I mean, I don't know what was going on in those missionaries heads, even though, you know, I'm, I'm learning different stories and talking to former missionaries of these regions and areas, too. And later in life, my father has this um, crazy journey of reconnecting with the church on his own in ways. Um, and decides to go to Brigham Young, not as an, a member, like didn't even remember he was baptized in the church. And he reads the Book of Mormon and is really touched by um, the Book of Mormon teachings that there's this double edged sword of the teachings. One is that um, many Latter-day Saint leaders, beginning with the founder, Joseph Smith uh, of the church, he um, propagated the idea that Native Americans are descendants of Lamanites, who are an ancient civilization featured in this seminal, you know, cornerstone text, as they call it, of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and thus the misnomer of Mormons for so many generations. Um, and then all the ways that this is appropriated by different Latter-day Saints and aspects, um, it, it's really a lot of entanglements and, and intertwining. So my father reads the Book of Mormon. And is touched by the teachings that his ancestors 
um, and that he's Lamanite, that his ancestors could be Lamanite and teachings of uh, a very, they called him a Lamanite prophet, though he was not native himself, uh, President Spencer W. Kimball. It's really under his leadership in the church that um, the church uh, it becomes, opens up these very strong programs in American Indian studies. And I say that um, one of them being the Indian student placement program that, that is often compared to Indian boarding schools because of um, the assimilationist approaches and the teachings and also the rhetoric that church leaders and members, especially the predominantly white American settler members were saying of, oh, well, the curse, there was a curse mentioned in the Book of Mormon of Lamanites who were these descendants of Israel that um, they needed to be redeemed. They would become the leaders of Zion, but they need redemption and, and whitening and, and they were cursed with dark skin. So that's the double edge, you know, sword and these contradictions of, of a lot of Latter-day Saint um, uses of scriptures, um, the way they applied them and the establishment of placement. So sorry, <laughs> so no, much to pack into that, a little time. There's a lot. You did a great job. No, I appreciate that, Farina. Um, we could have podcasts with each of you. Uh, for an hour each, and we still wouldn't get through it. We are talking today with Ashley Dreff, General Secretary of the General Commission on Archives and History of the United Methodist Church, Reverend Dr. Bradley Hoff, Hof, Episcopal Church Missioner for Indigenous Ministries, Dr. Farina King, Associate Professor of History at Northeastern State University, Dr. Brenda Child, Northrop Professor of American Studies at the University of Minnesota, and Christine Dindisi McCleave, Indigenous consultant and former CEO of the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition. Join us in building the digital first National Museum of American Religion by registering at nmar.org forward slash sign up and sign up is hyphenated. We have about 20 minutes left. Uh, let's go back around and get uh, some information, additional input from each panelist. Christine, what do you hope religions do today? if they learn that they ran boarding schools as part of their efforts to civilize Native Americans. And I should say, now that I myself have learned, in their efforts to educate and civilize Native Americans. Uh, yeah, great question. Important distinction there is, you know, the effort to educate included assumptions about what they needed to be educated on and towards. So, um, you know, I appreciate that some of my other uh, panelists here shared some of their personal connection to, to this work. I didn't uh, have time to do that in my first response, but yes, I also um, am a descendant of uh, boarding school survivors. My great-grandfather attended Carlisle Indian Boarding School, which was a federally run school, and my grandfather went to a Catholic Indian boarding school and experienced some negative um, things there, so much so that he never wanted to step foot in the church again. So that led me to do my master's thesis on Native American spirituality and Christianity, during that research, I really found that there is um, a, a full spectrum of spiritual practices among Native American people today with, you know, one end of the spectrum being that a lot of Native people are, you know, wholeheartedly and voluntarily Christian, and the other end of the spectrum being that a lot of people have returned to their traditional ways and don't have anything to do with Christianity, and plenty more in the middle who blend um, and practice these um, different theologies, you know, with levels of synchronicity. So um, the main thing to, to impart there, though, however, is that um, the extreme ends of the spectrum don't have much tolerance for each other because there are still churches out there, mostly evangelical, that still perpetuate the idea that Native spirituality is evil and non-biblical and demonic. And this still, you know, um, creates a lot of harm. And, and especially for those who've returned to their traditional spirituality and want nothing to do with Christianity, they hold deep resentment and hurt that has come from these um, experiences of their spirituality being um, judged and deemed evil. So there's still a, a lot of uh, room for healing in our communities. It gets really complicated when, um, you know, we have relatives 
relatives within our own families that have differing uh, religious and spiritual views. Uh, it becomes hard to practice that tolerance and acceptance and compassion for each other when um, there's, you know, still that underlying historical trauma and hurt that comes from this history of forced conversion. And it's not just forced conversion and the fact that um, they really, you know, stole our way of living. You know, hearing Dr. King, uh, I, I made a note to myself, they not only stole our language and our culture and our ceremonies, they stole our ancestors. I mean, that's just my perspective. Um, but, the, you know, the church needs to examine its role, not only in the boarding schools, but its relationship to expanding colonial empire on a global basis and its role in, uh, you know, taking the lands from indigenous peoples and propagating this system of, you know, Western ideology and, and capitalism. And then the, not only the harms that came from that land acquisition and, and, you know, wealth building on the backs of, you know, African slaves and American Indian people with stolen land, but the harms that were carried out in these church-run boarding schools that go beyond just ethnocide to devious abuse, spiritual abuse, physical abuse, and sexual abuse. There were uh, testimonies that came out of the Canadian Truth and Reconciliation Commission of babies being born and then murdered, whether they were born to students or in some cases, the testimony was that they were born to nuns. Um, there are many stories of very evil things happening at these schools. And even some as benign as, you know, telling the children that they can't speak to members of their own tribe or their brothers or sisters or their relatives who are there, all of these things have inflicted um, a level of harm that lingers with us as historical and intergenerational trauma. Many Native people have been calling for the churches to look into their records, to share those, to make those publicly accessible, to really get into the truth telling of this history and these experiences. And I we believe that that is starting to happen now, thanks to the Secretary of the Interior launching the initiative to investigate that churches and church goers are finally waking up to the fact that they need to examine this history. However, there needs to be a lot more work that's done to make sure that they don't do any more harm now that they want to make reparations or try to enter into truth and reconciliation processes. Churches need to understand that in this process of truth and justice, there's a basic principle not to cause any further harm. This includes being self-seeking in absolution. This, this is a time for uh, Native people, for descendants and survivors of these schools to really tell their stories and, and not to have that be um, a campaign for uh, churches to, to say, look, we're doing the right thing. Uh, the churches need to exer exercise extreme caution when it comes to collecting uh, testimony or oral history. In no case, in no court, is the perpetrator of a crime ever the one responsible for collecting testimony from the victim. So the churches need to recognize that their role in this history and these experiences is it, the perpetrator of crimes. Now, we also have people who've said, you know, they had positive experience at boarding school. And yes, there is a full spectrum of people's experiences, depending on the era that they went, the type of school that they went, the region, etc. Right. Okay. But we're talking, you know, in broad sweeping strokes here, that the church's role in ethnocide and genocide is of the perpetrator. And so they need to step back and, and really be careful about what they do to try and help or create or lead in healing initiatives. Thank you, Christine. Brenda, um, during the latter half of the 20th century, as these schools faded, I guess from early 20th century on, did some religions try to address what they had done and it, it, the negative aspects of what they had done? Do you see any of that in your research? Yeah. I guess that's a really great question, and I, I have no idea what the answer is. <laughs> and I'm someone who, you know, studied the government boarding schools primarily during this 50-year period that I was mentioning that Indian education in the boarding schools dominated federal policy making in the United States. And I, I think it's important to still talk about the federal boarding schools during the 1930s because they played such an important role 
in um, in poverty relief. So that's somewhat ironic that for the federal schools that even as um, the federal government kind of turns away from the government boarding school as an institution, that native demand in the 1930s kept kept the school uh, kept the schools going. Um, I know that's very much the case in the Midwest. And there are many, many Indian people who asked to send their children, somewhat ironically, to government boarding school in the 1930s because of their own uh, poverty, the recent dispossession they had experienced, the unemployment they were experiencing with the Great Depression. So it's kind of ironic that in terms of the federal schools, I'm not I've never studied mission schools, so I don't know about them, but that the this, this system kind of ends on this note that's very tied in with the Great Depression. Of course, by the 1930s, the federal government had sort of changed their policies in boarding schools as well. So that family separation and some of these things that were a part of the previous 50 years were not really seen as beneficial anymore. And in fact, you know, John Collier, Commissioner of Indian Affairs under, under FDR, referred to boarding schools as medieval institutions, right? So that's an important thing to kind of think about with the federal system, that it's uh, somewhat in decline in the 1930s. And everybody in Washington said, well, why don't Indian people go to public school? And so really the big story of Indian education in the second half of the 20th century is public school education. Um, so that's right. uh, kind of how I see it. But I also want to, you know, I think Christine's comments, I think were very good and made me think about how, you know, when we teach American Indian history, we do talk about religion and missionaries as part of settler colonialism, as part of this system that um, came to be in the United States, the structure here that exploited Native people's lands and their resources. And of course, Religion is not just a part of boarding school and education for Indians, because religion is also implicated in the whole reservation system. And I like to give an example of that to, to my students sometimes so they understand what that meant on a day-to-day -day, um, life for, for Native people. And so my grandparents, um, uh, who are Red Lake Ojibwe, well, my grandfather was from another Ojibwe community, but my grandmother was Red Lake Ojibwe, and they got married in the early 20s. And when it came time for them to, they had gotten married in kind of an old-fashioned Indian Ojibwe marriage. And in fact, my new book, I'm thinking a lot about this, because my new book's about the history of American Indian marriage. And so when they got married in the early 1920s, they did so in an Ojibwe way, which was her father was very involved in arranging the marriage, and there was a kind of a ritual exchange of gifts. In fact, all my life, my mother could recite all the things um, that her father was given as kind of part of what people call your, you know, dowry kind of thing. You know, the, the dancing outfit, the venison, the chickens, it's like it's kind of part of our family story. So as time went on in the 1920s, my grandparents wanted to get a housing loan at Red Lake. They wanted to build a house and they had, you know, kind of young children and a growing family. So they went up to the agency at Red Lake and my grandmother was kind of the family negotiator because she was bilingual and had been to boarding school. And my grandfather just spoke Ojibwe. And so when they went up, my grandfather actually on this occasion went up, um, was called into the agency because they wanted this housing loan. And they told him that they needed to have proof that they were indeed married. And so my grandparents got married in our little hometown on Red Lake of Redby by the Episcopal minister. His name was Julius Brown. And my grandfather took that piece of paper up to the agency to show indeed, even though they were married in an Ojibwe sense and had a children, were building a family, that they were married. Because my grandfather did not speak English, the Indian agent, I've read these records, said, we're going to have to talk to the minister. We're going to have to talk to Reverend Brown to see if indeed you are married. So even the official paper, my grandfather's word, that they were a family, that they had a marriage, was not good enough under the reservation system. Well, then Julius Brown came through for my grandparents. He said, yes, indeed, they are married. And you can see how the tone shifts on the reservation. They get a housing loan. Suddenly, they're a nice, desirable couple instead of all this skepticism about their status. You know, they commented on my grandmother's 
was he really the father of her children? You know, all kinds of um, meddling, right, that the agency did. And so it's important for us to realize that the reservation system is also there and part of boarding schools and that it was very implicated, you know, the missionaries, the role of religion in a way that I don't think exists today, but it certainly existed during that, um, that kind of 50, well, I would say during the, the allotment and assimilation years, that 50 year period and continued to be very influential for a very long time. So I think, you know, that's how I kind of um, look at the issue of religion in terms of American Indian history. Thank you. That's super helpful, uh, Brenda. Let's see. Let's let's ask uh, these last. I want to ask uh, Ashley, Bradley, and Farina uh, the same question, and just take a minute or two. We have about nine minutes. We have we have one question, but it's really uh, they were just asking about whether this will be recorded, and, and it's being recorded right now, and we'll we'll get it out. Uh, but there's another part of the question we'll get to. So just really quickly, Ashley, Bradley, and Farina. What I'd like to know, or the listeners, let the listeners know, is how have your denomination's stance toward Native Americans evolved over time? So, what what is it now compared to what was it in the early 19th century, or is it the same? So, really, you know, one or two minutes each. We'll start with Ashley. Give us a sense of that um, over time uh, change, if there has been, of of your stance towards Native Americans. Thank you. Um, so the United Methodist Church uh, stance and relationship with, with Native Americans has definitely improved, um, but we have a long way to go. The, by the end of the 1970s, the assimilationist type of boarding school largely fell out of fashion. Um, in 1972, the United Methodist Church's General Conference acknowledged the importance and authority of the Oklahoma Indian Mission Conference and gave it the same rights and powers as all other annual conferences. However, it does remain a missionary conference because the United Methodist Church wants to ensure that indigenous persons are ministered within ways that, that exist outside of the institutional power structure that's caused past harm. A couple other ways are through uh, research and accountability, holding ourselves account accountable to our past. Uh, in 2012, the General Conference authorized uh, research into the 1860 Sand Creek Massacre, where Methodists were largely responsible for the, the slaughtering of about 200 Cheyenne and Arapaho persons. And so we've, we've done um, a lot of research into that and kind of are still in the process of holding ourselves accountable for that. The agency I oversee is the General Commission on Archives and History. Um, we have been looking at the land um, of our heritage landmarks within the United Methodist Church. And for example, the Wyandotte Mission is one of our earliest missions. It was founded in 1819. And in 2019, uh, we gave the land back to the Wyandotte. And so it's we're, we're doing this on a lot of different levels um, in a lot of different ways, but we recognize that a lot of harm has been done and we have a long way to go. Thank you, Ashley. Uh, Bradley. In 2009, the Episcopal Church repudiated the doctrine of discovery, and that was an important first step because the residential schools, the boarding schools, the whole colonization process of the Western Hemisphere, all of that goes back to the doctrine of discovery. Uh, the uh, decrees, the papal decrees from the 15th century, the Dum Diversus, the Romanus Pontifex, and the Intercetera, which called for the colonization of Africa and the Western Hemisphere by the Christian European nations, the taking of land and the subjugation of the peoples of the land in those regions. That all goes back to the church. That was its origins. And the gospel of Jesus Christ tragically uh, unfortunately, was brought to the Western Hemisphere along with the narrative of colonization and white supremacy. Those narratives have not yet been effectively separated from each other. There are still white supremacists who consider themselves good Christians and they don't see a conflict at all between the two of them. Uh, as awful and distorted as that comes across to most of us, it, it, it is true. So repudiating all of that was an important first step. Uh, however, that is just a first step. More needs to happen, uh, specifically looking at uh, our history, what our involvement has been, and what our response to that needs to be, uh, what the ways of seeking justice and reconciliation uh, need, to, need to happen. Uh, I have found uh, in the Episcopal Church anyway, 
Uh, and in the Diocese of South Dakota and Minnesota, where I am, there are a good number of indigenous clergy in the Episcopal Church. And this goes all the way back to the 1850s. And the reason for that was because uh, when the missionaries came to our regions uh, with their agenda of assimilation, uh, we were theologically, spiritually able to see through that. We were able to see the gospel and not the church's agenda. When we heard stories about Jesus Christ for the first time, uh, many of our elders already knew those stories. They already knew of a Christ figure, an indigenous Christ figure who transcends cultures and spiritualities around the world. They didn't know about the first century Jesus of Nazareth, the Palestinian Jew, but they knew Christ and recognized Christ in those gospel stories, such to the extent that my elders would say, uh, Jesus must have been a Lakota because only a Lakota would be so brave. Only a Lakota would be so wise. Only a Lakota would be so generous. Only a Lakota would go to his death with such honor and integrity. Uh, and so that's what we have been embracing. Uh, and that's what I think helps indigenous people, at least in the Episcopal Church, uh, to be Christian, is to know that our narrative is our narrative and Christ is found within it. We don't claim the narrative of Israel. The narrative of Israel is a narrative of colonization. We claim the narrative of the indigenous peoples of the Old Testament, the Canaanites, the Jebusites, the Perizzites, the Hittites. Uh, we see things from a very different perspective, but it's what helps us to be Christian. Thank you, Bradley. Uh, Farina, you're not a representative of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, we have about three minutes. Can you give us a one-minute uh, description of, of how perhaps the, the, the church, this church um, has evolved over time from when it had the Indian student placement programs to now? Just a, yeah. minute, a minute of your observation. Um, so the placement program ran from 1947 to 2000, but the history, you know, goes back to, as I mentioned, the founding of the church. I mean, lots of diverse Native American experiences, Catawba, um, Northwestern, Banish Shoshone, so many, um, including, you know, all, I mean, you could look at all these different cases, but I think um, a major part of change over time that we see was um, Lamanite once was synonymous, you know, it was used to refer to all of these different Native American peoples and tribal nations by church leaders, by, um, you know, revered prophets in the church. And now that's not the case. There's been a distancing away from um, just automatically equating and assuming and interpreting the scriptures and applying those interpretations um, as the way uh, Dr. Elise Boxer, who has worked on decolonizing Mormonism, um, describes, you know, the Book of Mormon as a tool of colonialism. It was used, you know, as a tool of colonialism in, in all these different ways. But um, I think as there's that moving away from equating Lamanite and an Indian or indigenous Native American, um, there also was recently uh, President Nelson, who uh, is the president of the church at this time, said the Book of Mormon is not a history textbook. And he said that at um, the uh, an event as the church was sponsoring and supporting um, the First Peoples Museum that opened in Oklahoma recently and is really um, trying to support family history and oral history and different projects and relationships with different tribal nations. But I think um, to wrap this up, the church has very, very far to go because as mentioned by uh, some of the panelists here today, actually most Latter-day Saints have no idea about the placement program. And I know I couldn't even get into that. They have no idea about the, all these intertwined histories with Native Americans and certainly are far from repudiating the doctrine of discovery, um, sadly and regretfully, and even, you know, not being as supportive. And this is saying it as, as gently as I can being recorded of learning the truth and researching and accessing these sources, including to even their own members, you know, Latter-day Saints and their archives. So much to be done to let us, let people learn, allow us to learn and to heal. And uh, lastly, I'd like to say, 
everyone, you know, be kind to each other and listening to each other's stories that I, I have been really hurt by different peoples of how they just automatically make assumptions about someone because of the re religion they decide to affiliate with the kind of things, ways that my father, my family have been treated and my relations. We are family, we are relations. And to not forget that, um, whatever choice people make in their life, how do we come to see that we're five-fingered people, we are human and that respect and kindness. So that's something I'll say in all regards, including um, of course, to people who have been so destructive and violent and hurtful towards other people, of course. Um, thank you. Thank you, Farina. You have the last word. We have been talking with Ashley Dreff, General Secretary of the General Commission on Archives and History of the United Methodist Church, Reverend Dr. Bradley Hof, Episcopal Church Missioner for Indigenous Ministries, Dr. Farina King, Associate Professor of History at Northeastern State University, Dr. Brenda Child, Northrop Professor of American Studies at the University of Minnesota, and Christine Dindisi McCleave, Indigenous Consultant and former CEO of the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition. Panelists, thank you so very much for being with us today and providing compelling information about the history of religion's role in Native American boarding schools, which has helped us to understand more, America more deeply, and be more equipped to participate in the nation's reckoning with its treatment of Native Americans with an eye to improving and preserving the American experiment in self-government. Thank you very much. The podcast series, Religion in the American Experience, is a project of the National Museum of American Religion. Episodes will be released on the first and third Mondays of each month on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Register for notifications on our website, www.storyofamericanreligion.org under the sign-up tab.